0: morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And before we go any further, I want to take a moment to thank all of those who pledged in support of Talking Animals during last Wednesday's Fund Drive show, or beforehand. We did reach our fundraising goal. In fact, we exceeded it. So I'm truly grateful for all the pledges. Thank you very, very much. That said, the station fell short of its overall goal. So if you didn't have a chance to pledge last week or you'd like to donate again, please do so at WMNF.org. As for today, my guest is noted wildlife photographer Wayne Lynch also a naturalist and best-selling author Lynch has just published Bears of the North A Year Inside Their Worlds a tome that could absolutely be called a coffee table book a large hardback replete with Lynch's striking photographs of bears, bears and more bears more specifically the bears represented here as the title may suggest are the four northern bears American black bear polar bear brown bear and Asiatic black bear if the book only featured Lynch's stunning earth images Bears of the North would be truly stellar yet the book also features tax tack- Tremendous text exploring what these four species do amidst the different seasons, including delving into hibernation and the voracious eating that precedes it, the birth of cubs, mating rituals, hunting and fishing, and a good deal more. We'll get specifics about this book and some of the vast bear information covered in it when I speak with Wayne Lynch in just a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll speak briefly with Samantha Polk. Development Director at Animal Coalition of Tampa, ACT, about their big forthcoming fundraiser, Stride for Strays, the 20th edition of this annual event, held this year on Saturday, October 30th at Al Lopez Park. We'll hear more about this a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss bears, bears of the North to be exact. With Wayne Lynch, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Wayne Lynch on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning, Duncan. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Animals.
1: Oh, I'm happy
0: to be here. Well, first, I love this book. I'm going to rave more about it in a moment. I can't wait to discuss it. But first, on something of a pretty related note, can we just talk more broadly for a moment or two about bears? Lots of folks I know, certainly lots of folks in my house, absolutely adore bears, whether it's online videos of them enjoying someone's swimming pool or photos of them standing upright or live cam feeds of them grabbing salmon. People seem to find bears enchanting. Why? Why Why do you think people react that way to bears?
1: Well, I'm certainly not a psychologist to know, but generally um, all societies seem to uh, be attracted to serious predators, whether it's tigers in south, in south southern Asia, whether it's crocodiles in Australia, whether it's lions in Africa, and and bears in North America. It's just that we're fascinated by animals that can potentially harm us, but at the same time, we are just uh, admire the way that they survive.
0: And is there something, in, in addition to like, say, what you know, noted about tigers or just predators generally, is there something additionally sort of charismatic about bears that helps account for what I think is kind of an unusual uh, fondness, affection, enchantment, whatever that seems to go on? Well,
1: I think in part because... Unlike those other predators that I mentioned, which often may uh, prey on people, bears rarely do. Yeah. They're potentially capable of being predators, but they're uh, but most often they're not. They're basically just cows that are out there grazing around, except with the exception would be, of course, the polar bear, which is predatory. But normally we are not on the menu of these animals, and we can watch them, and we have watched them for centuries uh, out in the wild doing their thing. and And they display a whole range of behaviors that we can identify with. They have young, and they seem to be attentive to their young and look after them and protect them. And uh, and so th- th- I think those are the qualities that endear us to bears. And, and they can be funny and they have personalities. Certainly, the, the, uh, ask anyone who has watched a, a fixed number of bears, say at um, McNeil Brown Bear Sanctuary or Katmai Falls, the biologists that are there recognize individuals and they see individual personalities. and uh, And so there are there are timid bears, there are aggressive bears, there are playful bears, and so they display the whole range of behavior that you see in humans, and I think we identify
0: with that. Well, that may uh, go part way to answering kind of what was my next question along these lines, is sort of more what is it about bears for you? I mean, nobody devotes themselves to a book like this, or, or previous books for that matter, without being supremely fascinated by bears and probably pretty passionate about them. Is there something that... Well, I
1: mean... <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, first and foremost, I think, um, although this book does feature... Uh, f- um, nice photographs of bears. It is primarily a book about them. I mean, I am a science writer who photographs, as opposed to a photographer who occasionally writes. So it's the science and and it's the um, the complexity of their behavior which draws me to a topic, whether it be penguins, whether it be owls, or in this case, bears. And and bears have been studied intensively because we harvest them. That's the euphemism for shooting them. And so, in all of the animals where we have a hunting season on them, we've studied them intensely so that we can uh, hopefully harvest uh, an appropriate number so that they continue to survive. And so that's one of the reasons. I mean, they're so, they've been studied intensively, and so we know a lot about them, a lot about their biology. And the more we study, the more we find out it is much more complex than we ever imagined. And that has kept my interest for four decades.
0: Yeah, because I think uh, even in the preface, you know that bears have been pretty much since the time you were a little kid, pretty much uh, an obsession and and almost haunted uh, by them at times, it seems.
1: Well, that's true. I mean, I guess just because, again, they were a predator. I don't know what a a little boy in India thinks about a tiger or a little boy in in Australia thinks about crocodiles, but sometimes, you know, there are always these demons in our nightmares, and for me it happened to be bears, because um, I spent my summers on my uncle's dairy farm in southern Ontario, and in those woods, in those times, there were black bears. So I was afraid of them. They never hurt me, or I never even saw them, but they were always in the stories of the adults. Oh, there's bears out in those woods. And uh, so you just come to, to pick some animal that is possibly a predator of you and and that uh, you stays with you as a, as a child. But then once I got into reading the science, I mean, I thought initially I naively thought, I'd written my first book was on the prairies, the ecology of the mixed grass prairie in North yeah. America. And I thought, ooh, that t- had taken me four years. If I'm going to be a freelancer I better be able to produce books for faster than that. And I thought, oh, there's only a a handful of bears that can't be more than a few hundred references to read. And I can go out and photograph them and boom, it'll all be over. Well, nine years later, (laughs) I I realized how difficult it was and how much had been written about bears. I was quite naive about that. And and that has continued now. And now with DNA and with uh, uh, dietary studies and isotopes and all of these other exciting uh, scientific discoveries, we find out their lives are far more complex than we ever,
0: could have imagined. And you delve into quite a bit of that and I should uh, just I guess wonder if because of your experience growing up and, and going to the uh, the family farm if that's why uh, uh, once or twice in the book and already once in this conversation you've uh, likened bears in a tongue-in-cheek way obviously to cows and if that's kind of the connection that you had between the, uh, the,
1: the Well, I think that's that's coincidental it's just that bears are are omnivores like we are Yeah and, and we they eat far more vegetation than they eat meat of course they'll opportunistically eat meat when they can but the bulk of their lives when I'm talking about bears, I mean the Asiatic American black bear and the brown bear. The, the polar bear is not vegetarian at all. Yeah. It will eat some seaweeds, but it's primarily a predator. So, But for the other bears that most of us see, because most people don't see polar bears, they're in remote locations, yeah. uh, they're eating grass. They're by the roadside eating dandelions. They're chewing on aspen catkins. They're feeding on bark. They're doing all the kinds of things that you would expect out of a porcupine or out of a cow. And um, and so that's... that they're they're more like cows than they are carnivores
0: i got gotcha. you Great. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Wayne Lynch, photographer and author of numerous books. Most recently, Bears of the North, A Year Inside Their Worlds. For those scoring at home, the four Northern Bears at the center of his book are the American Black Bear, Polar Bear, the Brown Bear, and the Asiatic Black Bear. If you'd like to ask Wayne a question about bears, please call 813-239-9663, email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So let's talk about those four. Northern northern bears a little bit, because um, they're clearly the, the star of the show, although you broaden into other animals along the way and then later, towards the end of the book, bears all together, uh, tropical bears, etc. So, uh, but maybe you could just talk briefly about the four northern bears and maybe provide like a distinguishing trait or two about each one, just so those who aren't bear aficionados can grasp more readily which bear is which and, and what distinguishes them.
1: Okay, well, let, let's start with an overview. There are eight species of bears in the world, and as you just mentioned In your intro, four of those species I arbitrarily consider uh, tropical bears. That would be the panda, the sloth bear in Southeast Asia. The panda, of course, is only found in, in China. And then uh, the sloth bear in Southeast Asia, uh, Southern India, rather, um, the sun bear, and the Andean bear in South America. So those And those bears are more distant relatives of the four northern bears. The four northern bears share a common genus, which in science means that they're more closely related to each other than they are to the other bears. And they're northern hemisphere species. And so you've got the polar bear, which is occupying sea ice. That's, that's its um, main habitat, and that's the reason why it's kind of become um, the uh, poster child for climate change. because yeah. uh, Arctic sea ice is disappearing, and therefore the habitat of the polar bear is disappearing. It is primarily a predatory bear feeding on seals, walruses, and sometimes uh, n- newborn whales those kind that's the prey of them. Mm. Then there are the brown bears, which is probably the most widespread species of bear in the world, because whether you call it the grizzly bear or the Alaskan brown bear or the Kodiak bear, they're all the same animal. That's the problem with common names. You can think that we're dealing with different species, but in fact, it's one single species just with the variability. Variability, just as there's one species of human, but there's lots of variability in the way we look and in our culture. But we are one species. And brown bears are found from imagine uh, a map and we're talking in Spain so there we are in Europe it starts all the way over in Spain goes through parts of central uh, uh, Europe across the northern parts of Russia and then into Alaska and then down through Canada, down as far south as Yellowstone National Park. So that's the range of the brown bear. It's all one species, called different things in different areas, different sizes because its diet varies somewhat. But again, it's primarily an omnivore, which means that it eats both meat and vegetation. But in most of those areas, its, prey, it's the bulk of its diet is vegetation. Mm-hmm. And then there's the two black bears which are kind of sister species if you will and they fill the same niche in two different areas in other words they're, they basically have the same job in two different locations the american black bear which is found throughout canada and into the united states and and down as far as mexico there are in northern mexico there are there are American black bears. And then there's the Asiatic black bear, which is found in Asia and in Russia and in Southeast Asia. Again, filling the same kind of niche. Both the Asiatic black bear and the American black bear are also omnivorous. Much more so, you might say, than some of the brown bears. But there's lots of variability within the population as there is lots of variability within human diet. And so they just display the same kind of flexibility that we have, they have as well and take advantage of sources wherever they can find it yeah so there you are
0: nice talking with you duncan yeah i guess You're we're right done but i think we've covered everything <laughs> uh well in, c- in case we want to cover a couple more things just because the book certainly covers a tremendous amount of things and uh you know we aren't going to have time to touch on them all but i want to hit at least a few kind of main things that i think people are always interested in some other can things I, that... can i
1: just say one thing here duncan sure please Just say one thing that i think I think it's important. I mean, the way I want the book to, I mean, the photographs are there. As a science writer, I've always used photographs as a way to tease people into a book. They open the book, they look at the pictures, oh, this is beautiful. And they could buy it solely for the photographs. Yeah. But that's not the real wealth of a book. To me, it's the, the photographs are my way of teasing you into, oh, you'll read the captions, ooh, these are interesting. I wonder what the text says, uh, Jason. And then I, I kind of sucker you into reading this gee whiz science, which will blow you away, because you never believed that uh, their lives could be so complex and filled with such drama and exciting possibilities. And so that, that's the way all of my books have been Written, and certainly this one has this is the longest book i've ever written and and because there is so much exciting new science that it it merited that kind of length, but people will look at it and say, "Oh, this is beautiful like you've often you have introduced it twice as uh, a, as i'm a photographer, and this is a coffee table book, but uh, sometimes we tend to trivialize books and think if it's a coffee table book, there can't be much substance to it. it's just pretty pictures, but it, this is the reverse and the the pictures. I, hopefully, we, you'll find attractive, and will interest you in opening the book and looking at it, and possibly giving it as a gift. Um, but uh, it's the text that is, I think, uh, the the real. Uh best part
0: of the book. I, I couldn't agree more, and I just, in my own uh, limited defense, I will just say that, yes, I did uh, compare it to a coffee table book, but that was by way of saying that that's only a small portion of what's uh, stellar about the All book, right. was that it, it was the text that uh, that really distinguishes it. So, yeah, so I think you you successfully suckered me and, and probably anyone else who picks up the book, because it does, it. it's a sizable substantial book. It sits right here where I am in the studio, like a, like a serious tome, and you, of course there's a cover photo as there would be anywhere but then you start flipping through but then yeah you see oh my goodness wow this is jam packed with all kinds of information some of which I might have known a little bit about some of which I didn't know anything about because it's more recent uh, scientific exploration or research that you've done or that you've um, compiled or both and um, which sort of brings me in a way to something that that again I think a lot of us that are interested in bears are interested in uh, which is hibernation so I just want to quickly say in my family I famously did not understand hibernation on a part of this is an ongoing thing from when I was a little kid we were on a family vacation at Yosemite and uh, I wondered why we weren't seeing any bears when we were kind of cruising around my mom said because well, they're sleeping And I was full of outrage. I just said, at 10.30 in the morning, how could they be sleeping? So uh, I know a little bit more now than I did when I was a little kid about hibernation. But I don't know enough. So what exactly is hibernation, and why do bears do it? Well, hibernation is is
1: not unique to bears. Lots of rodents do it. Bats do it. Other animals do it. It's really an energy-saving behavioral strategy. That's what it is. You want to save energy? Then let your metabolism slow down reduce your activity to next to nothing and just stay in one location and you'll burn as little energy as possible and that's what all hibernators do they do it for the same reasons to avoid a time of the year when the weather may be severe and when food is scarce that's the the commonality across all hibernators, but they vary in how they do this, and so you can get ground squirrels um, and uh, uh, marmots, uh, marmot is the biggest of the ground squirrels, you can get them where their body temperature will drop almost, in fact, below freezing, the arctic ground squirrel, the temperature of its body will drop below freezing, and uh, just a few degrees, and its metabolism, its heart rate slows down to from a few hundred to dozens of beats per minute, its respiration slows, everything slows down, so it's really conserving energy. And then you turn over to the bear, which is a much bigger animal, and its body temperature will drop uh, somewhat, uh, only maybe 3 to 8 degrees centigrade. Its heart rate drops, its uh, respiration drops, and, of course, its activity. And it's saving energy. That's what it's doing. But in all, all the usual hibernators, whether it's bats or ground squirrels or marmots, um, they all wake up periodically during the hibernation period to defecate and urinate, sometimes possibly sometimes to eat a little bit. But now from recent research, we find out that what they do, they wake up, up, basically to bring their body temperature back up to normal so that their brain can restore normal function, basically to sleep. That's what's happening when we're sleeping is that we're allowing the circuitry in our brain to reorganize itself and sort of get tidy before we uh, wake up again. And so so they think that's what's happening with hibernators. That's why they have to do that, um, to come back up and uh, um, <laughs> organize everything, their immune system and their their brain activity, and then they slip back into hibernation again. And they'll do that every two to three weeks throughout the hibernation period. Bears are quite unique. They're quite yeah. unique in that they don't urinate, defecate, uh, eat th- through the entire thing. And so they don't go through these cycles. They go through slight cycles, but not nearly the way the ground squirrel does. And so that's, so that's the spectrum. They're all doing it for the same reasons, to, yeah. to save energy and to survive a time of the year when food is scarce and weather conditions are severe. And so there we are. Are. and yeah. um, and so are, you'll see in the old literature are they true hibernators or are they not hibernators are they carnivore lethargy they have a dozen different names for this but it's all the same kind of process no matter what you call it and it's for the same purpose
0: and i guess i'm wondering with what you described about this pattern of every two or three weeks they kind of uh, rouse themselves a little bit to help with the yep. transition so that's probably because periodically you see reports about people who are out and about or doing research or whatever that whatever takes them out to where bears are hibernating and suddenly they the bears are moving in a way that in most cases i guess seems quite uh, jarring to the people that are out there but that's probably exactly what that is is that's just that period where they're getting themselves well, up
1: no, no duncan i i may have misled you there oh, okay that's not the case with the bears that's the case with the other hybrid ah okay the bears don't don't come outside and and wander around for an hour or two and then go back in. They stay in there. Dan. it's just that their body temperature may fluctuate somewhat in these cycles. It's very, from two to seven days, their uh, their um, temperature may fluctuate within that. But though no, they're basically... Uh, immobile for the entire time. And in some American black bears that uh, hibernate in Alaska, the most northern parts of their range, they may be in a den for up to eight months at a time.
0: I mean, uh, that's
1: the, the exciting. My background is I was an emergency physician, and so I'm interested in what happens to people when you put them in a bed Okay their bones thin out and and researchers are looking at bears. How is it that they can be in a den and not have not be moving around and not be uh, exercising uh, and still have strong bones because when people are put in bed or when astronauts are sent into space uh, with uh, zero gravity. Their bones thin out. They get the serious osteoporosis. And so bears were being studied for that reason. How are bears able to do it? Because they do maintain their bone mass, whereas humans put into a bed or humans sent into space Lose bone mass very quickly when their muscles aren't pulling on it, when gravity isn't um, applying to them. So that those are interesting things. That's what I mean. That we've learned so much about bears, and they can. there were study animals for things that can help humans.
0: And is there is it too early, uh, Wayne, to take something from looking at how they do that and how they? don't have any kind of muscle loss or don't have sores or other things that people that are lying flat or in space or whatever experience is, is there a way to so far to incorporate that knowledge or is that still being studied
1: well, no that's still
0: being studied
1: yeah. we're just curious i mean just curious as to why that happens sure so yeah. we we don't know we don't gotcha. know but that's been studied for a long time and it's unfortunately we can't translate
0: it directly into therapies for humans yeah not not yet anyway sounds like that may there yeah. may that may come yeah all right, so we've got a caller and an emailer and some other folks, so let's get some people involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with uh, Wayne Lynch. Hello. Hello, go ahead. It's you, please.
2: Oh, okay. Um, I just wanted to mention that um, human beings do fast for therapeutic reasons, even long fast. is very much like hibernation, and one of the things that bears do when they're hibernating is get rid of parasites. Hmm.
1: I don't know uh, about that.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I, I thought that... <laughs> I thought either you know or you hadn't considered that aspect. um the body he, he does a lot of detoxing work, and you're not feeding a lot of those parasites, and you you change the alkalinity in the blood and the digestive tract, and a lot of parasites leave. so that is that's in everything that happens during hibernation. well,
1: well, as a good scientist, um, the first thing I would say is I'm skeptical always of statements like you just said. It may well be true, but I would want to see how you came to how how the people that said that came to those conclusions and whether in fact it's true. Um, we have to be always careful about science. That's why we have peer-reviewed journals. I mean, uh, and because that means that a scientist may propose something and say something like, you know, you, you just said it, it clears the body of parasites, it changes the alkalinity of the blood. Well, I would want to, other scientists would look at it and say, okay, show me how this happened and, and show me the studies. You can't just say something, and so um, I've never heard either of those statements, and so, but that doesn't mean they're not true, I'm just saying that as a good scientist, as a good reader of of the facts, we have to say, show me, show me the fact, that's all it is, I mean, uh, in North America, we're having a lot of trouble accepting facts, look at just the vaccine thing, and so, uh, what we have to do is look at the data for everything, and you may be, you certainly may be right, but I've never seen anything to support what you say, so uh, I would be very curious to do that, but that—that's—that's that's all I would say. <laughs> just uh, well, uh, my, it's, the, my- it's hell-
0: okay, caller. Here, here's the thing: we're going to keep moving because we have a lot of things to talk to Wayne about. We have other uh, questions from from other listeners. But if there is some kind of um, peer-reviewed or other sort of uh, documentation that you'd like to share uh, with Wayne, you could send it to me at dj at dot org, and I'd, I'd be happy to get it to to Wayne for his review. Okay.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I mean,
1: they, it, it's healthy to be skeptical. That's the thing that I'm trying to say is skeptical of facts, skeptical of statements. I mean, it's because we aren't uh, skeptical of this, that's gotten us, us meaning North Americans, into lots of trouble accepting data on, on Facebook and on all these social media uh, networks that are absolutely false because no one questions it. They just accept it. Show me the reason, and, and I'll accept it. If you've got no facts, then I'm afraid it's... Uh, it shouldn't be listened to.
0: Okay, caller, thank you so much, and I do hope you do pass along that stuff. And, I, and if you do, I will forward it to, uh, to Wayne for sure. Thank you again for your call. Thank
1: you. Bye. Sorry for the digression, but I think it's really important.
0: No, I about, think it's super science. important, and I think even those of us who are nowhere near as steep in science as you are are certainly familiar with the scientific method and, and just basic things that you just laid out, that, like, uh, if, if there's something, especially someone who just wrote a hugely scientific, extensive book about bears is hearing something that they haven't heard before about bears and about hibernation, like you said kindly, doesn't mean you're not right. I just want to see some scientific documentation and right. per- period and study. Exa- exactly duncan and yeah.
1: now in in this most treacherous of times when we're having all these problems with the covid virus and so much of, of the, the problems we're having is fueled by misinformation and false data that's i mean that makes it important to everyone all of your listeners plus everyone else out there we need to listen to science and and that's how science operates
0: Facts and data. That's it. Yeah. So let me uh, read a couple. Of, one of our emailers has a couple of different uh, things, but again, it's a measure of what we started off talking about—about about just how much, generally, people are interested in bears. Sometimes in the uh, what I would describe maybe as the wrong way, which we'll get to in one sec, and uh, and just uh, <laughs> worried about them maybe, and also the wrong way. So, anyways, this emailer says, "Hello, what a great guest. I read recently that an idiotic woman who." got too close to a mom and three cubs in Yellowstone and was jailed for four days. Yay for that. Also, it says here, the governor of Wyoming wants to delist grizzlies. This guy seems determined to kill off the bear and wolf populations. What can we do about this? Thank you.
1: Well, I mean, those are difficult questions. I certainly uh, agree with, I mean, because... Uh, a habituated bear or a fed bear. I mean, often we want to get close to bears because you know we find them cuddly and everything else, and and they do respond to food. If you give them food, they will take it uh, from you. But unfortunately, a fed bear becomes a dead bear, and uh, because eventually they they don't know the boundaries that we will set for them, and they'll go onto porches and break into cottages and houses, and they they've just become habituated to human food, and and then they end up being uh, killed and so uh, um i am always happy when per- people are uh, prosecuted for doing things like that, habituating animals that will end up being dead. I mean, the, the animals, not the people. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 then in Wyoming, I mean, hunting regulations are a problem. I mean, I, I'm uh, I'm not against, um, I personally don't hunt, uh, and I'm not against sport hunting, as long as the resource, I don't feel I can morally say, you can't hunt, I don't like to hunt, so you can't hunt. No, as long as the resource is there for everyone and that the resource is managed for the total population. I, I had this same discussion with a, with an earlier interviewer, and just here in I live in Alberta, Canada,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: five percent of the population has a hunting license, and ten percent has a fishing license. That means ninety percent of Albertans don't hunt and don't fish. Yeah. The resource needs to be there for all of us. And so they say in Wyoming, I don't know what the percentage is, but I am sure the percent. There are the hunters that want to shoot grizzly bears are much in the minority. In so the vast majority of Wyomings want to see grizzly bears and want grizzly bears to be there, and so that's the way we should manage the resource. Um, and that, that's that's all I can say. I mean, I okay. don't believe in trophy hunting, but I don't think I can stop you from doing it as long as the resource is there and it's managed well.
0: Okay, fair enough. So, um, so Wayne, kind of want to touch on a, uh, at least a handful of the things in the book in our in the time that we have here together. So. One thing that you talk about, and of course there's uh, photos uh, plenty of, is mom, mama bears and their cubs. And people always talk about the mm-hmm. pr- protectiveness and the fierceness of a mother bear. First, from your experience and all your research and all your direct observation, which cl- obviously is plenty, uh, does that hold true? And is it more true for the mother bear of one northern species, for example, than another?
1: Well, um, uh, his, well, typically typically the brown bear evolved in an open habitat. And so it's tundra or uh, and or grassland. So there are no trees for it to escape up to. So when it was confronted with a predator or a human that um, that might harm its offspring, it had no choice to send the cubs up a tree as an American black bear would. The black bears evolved in forested environments and their response to danger is to climb a tree or to run away. Okay the cubs are sent up a tree and the mother runs away and so the cubs are protected out on the open tundra the grizzly bear has no doesn't have that option it's cubs can't go anywhere and so its response to a threat is to attack a bluff charge initially or to attack so it's not because they're inherently more aggressive it's that they they evolved in an environment where they didn't have an option so if they want to protect their offspring they they can't send them someplace there's no place to go it's a treeless environment so they attack and that so mothers of all species whether you're talking about moose whether you're talking about elk i mean here in in the canadian rockies where i live people all the time are attacked by mother elk protecting their offspring. They're attacked by moose. In Yellowstone, uh, bison will attack um, people. And and it's just mothers protecting their offspring. Yeah. And so it's not unique to bears. It's just that, that because bears have such potential for harming us, they, they get into the press more often. But I'll bet you, well, I know uh, I don't have the statistics. Again, here I am talking about peer review. So I'll just throw off some some casual things but I'll bet that more people are attacked by mother elk and mother moose in the Canadian Rockies than they are attacked by bears
3: hmm. so it's okay just-
1: mothers protective of their offspring. The same thing would happen if it was a cougar or if it was a bobcat or anything else. They would try to protect
0: their young. So I think what you're suggesting, Wayne, is that mother uh, bears maybe have a better publicist than some of the other species about their, about their protectiveness. <laughs> well, yeah.
1: or, or not. Yeah, okay. They're maligned because yeah. of it. Oh, they're <laughs> terribly aggressive. <laughs> yeah,
0: I got you. So uh, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strass- need a publicist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. My guest is Wayne Lynch, photographer and author of numerous books, most recently Recently, his newest book is Bears of the North, A Year Inside Their Worlds. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813 239 emailing dj at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. And speech, speaking of texting, we did get a text, kind of back to our hibernation conversation. This one says, how much weight do bears lose during hibernation?
1: Okay, good question. On average, they would lose 20 to 25% of their body weight, and that's, Uh, A bear that isn't nursing cubs, a mother bear might lose up to forty percent of her body weight because, of course, she's producing this fat-rich milk to nourish her cubs, and uh, so it it varies depending on the individual.
0: Okay, and And the
1: and of course, and of course, the length of time that they're in hibernation. A bear in Florida, for example, may hibernate only for a month of the year, or not at all whereas one in alaska as i mentioned earlier may hibernate for eight months so yeah. uh, depending on the location they will uh, lose more body weight
0: all right and, and
1: that that you you were suggesting something earlier that i i thought we were going down you said oh well that might explain why you might see bears out and about in the middle of the winter when you see bears out in the middle of winter it's because they've run out of fat reserves they're desperate
0: ah, and so okay.
1: uh, when they go into their their fall hibernation that's their period when they eat the most they go into what's called a hyperphasic phase that their appetite goes from 8,000 calories a day to 20,000 calories a day. They they consume as many calories as they can to put on weight. And if they're not able to do that, um, then come mid midway through hibernation in the middle of winter, they're suddenly run out of fat. So they have no option. If they don't go out and try and find, scavenge something, they will die. They'll starve to death. Mm. So that that's why you might see bears out in the middle of winter. I mean, here in Alberta, uh, we've had a very dry season. The, the berry crop was terrible. So I expect... M- Some bears may be going into hibernation with compromised fat reserves, and I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing them coming out early, um, especially juvenile bears, the teenagers of the bear world that haven't yet learned how to um, forage as efficiently as adults. Gotcha. Sorry to digress.
0: but I- No, no, that's all interesting, and, and it brings me to another question in terms of eating, which is uh, in the book you, of course, acknowledge the importance of salmon to bears. So if you would, I'd like you to recount different or, or striking scenes you witnessed or captured while observing bears catching and feeding on salmon. Plus, I was really interested that you decided to swim with schools of spawning uh, salmon just to kind of get a direct uh, perspective on that. So in, any or all of that that you'd like to address, I'd be really interested to hear.
1: Well, I, uh, yes, I've, I've done that now multiple seasons now because it's really fascinating. I mean, if you lay, lay in, the, in, a, in a spawning stream with a wetsuit on and, and don't move around, then suddenly you just become a log and the fish ignore you. And so you can see them going about their business. So that was always, I never did it in salmon streams where there were bears also competing for the same fish. Uh, but it was it was uh, part of the story um, that made it interesting for me. And I'm glad you brought up about salmon. I mean, that the interesting thing and the discoveries that we made from my early books on bears, which we did back in the 90s and, and now, is that how much salmon, um, the nutrients from salmon, filters into the, tremendous rainforest we have along the west coast of north america and it's bears that transfer that nu- those nutrients so this the bears are eating the salmon oftentimes they're just eating the fat and and the, the the brain and the eggs of the and and then leaving all the rest of the the meat all the muscle the part that we like they leave behind and those nutrients leach into the environment they're eaten by insects by by um, different insects and they get absorbed by the trees and and so many of those the very towering trees we see on the west coast owe their um, their their existence to nutrients from the ocean, transferred via salmon via bears to them and and because we know that because of isotopes and nitrogen um, I won't get into how it all figures out, but they figured out that a lot of the nutrients for these to build these beautiful forests come from salmon. And that, that, to me, is the exciting part of the story. That's why they call it the salmon forest, mm. uh, not because there are salmon in the forest, but yeah. salmon are responsible for the luxuriance of the forest. Yeah. And bears uh, are responsible for transferring m- many of that because they'll abandon carcasses. They just want part of it, or they'll only eat a little bit of it and then leave it and go back. And, and if there's lots, if the hunting is good, they'll just t- catch another fish more. and so on and so yeah. forth. Yeah, so that those those are the discoveries that just blew me away. Who who ever predicted that? When I wrote my first book in the 90s, absolutely no one ever thought, well, the reason why we have these beautiful rainforests along the coast of British Columbia and Washington is because of bears. <laughs> No, no one ever would have thought that. Yeah, And uh, and it's because of isotopes that we now know. Isotopes that originate in the ocean are ending up in forests. How did they get there? Well, they got there via salmon and
0: with the help of bears. Wow, so interesting. Yeah. And speaking of writing your first book of the 90s, you said something earlier that kind of went by, but it stuck in my head. So did I understand you to say, Wayne, that at one point before all this began that you were a physician?
1: Yes, I was. I was an emergency physician yeah. teaching at the medical school in ottawa and i i was always i've always been interested in all the sciences and and so and so um and Not just those relating to humans, and so from a, a young age I was a critter junkie, if you will. And so when I was practicing medicine in Ottawa, I said um, I said to my department head, "I'm going to take a couple of years off just so I can write and photograph, just so that when I'm 50 years old, I won't say I wish I had, because the only thing I was going to lose was money, and that wasn't so important to me." And uh, that was in 1979, and I never went back. Yeah, and so interesting. Uh, I'm now 73 years old, and uh, and it's uh, uh, I don't regret a moment of it because I was able to explore the the wonderful world of science and and, and our wonderful natural world. Yeah, uh, well, it's clear and, and to have a background as a doctor, um, I understand human physiology and I understand and so much of having that background. Many science writers now have a background in biology or a background in journalism, and my background in medicine gives me a unique perspective as to how it relates to human, uh, how it relates to the animals, you know. And yeah. so, for example, when I talk about Bears hibernating can talk about human sleep, you see, and that's sure. re- relevant to, to that. And so, it has turned out to be uh, a, a nice background to have. And so I'm, I'm, I feel very privileged.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating path that you took, and, and again, your your uh, framework for understanding things that you're studying about bears, or other books that you've written about other uh, species, uh, yeah, is is clearly informed by that. So you know, it just goes back to what our, our earlier part of our conversation with the caller that that having a, a true deep science background can make a huge difference when you're trying to really understand findings or what you're looking at or what the research. But, but
1: is. you know, I mean, I think Duncan the, the important for your listeners to understand is you don't have to be a scientist to understand science sure you just have to listen listen to scientists right because and and then they will or listen to a science journalist who has taken this difficult material and giving it to you in a digestible form but hasn't changed the validity of the facts the facts are the facts (laughs) vaccinations reduce covid infections period end of story and so you don't have to have – so there, so that's science, and that's someone telling you that this is the way the science operates. So people – I mean, sometimes people think, oh, science is so intimidating. Well, it, it can be, but there's lots of ways of getting science from reliable sources that isn't intimidating. Uh, everybody – most people are quite smart enough to understand all of this stuff. Uh, Einstein said that he could describe his theory of relativity to a grade 2 student because he knew how to do it in a simple way. Every complex – um, subject can be described in a simple way if the person understands it well. Yeah. And that, that's that's the role of me as a science writer and as a science journalist and as political journalists. All they're trying to do is take complex subjects and give it to you in an understandable fashion without changing the validity of the facts. The facts are the facts.
0: Right. That's
1: kind of, yeah, and that's it. And, and, and so that's why... Um, uh, No matter how in-depth my science is, it has always written, I assume that you understand nothing in this principle. That doesn't mean you're uneducated. It just means you don't know anything about this particular topic. And so I always try and carry you through, and then with a a line of logic that you can follow it easily and say, oh, yeah, that's pretty simple. And there it is. And and that's the job
0: of, of good science writing. That, absolutely and and we're just uh, in the last moment or so of our time together wayne but uh, i just want to mention again your book is bears of the north a year inside their worlds and uh again, it's been officially out uh, just a hair, hair over a week so wherever you get your books presumably you can get this book <laughs> and um and just one last thing i i'm not sure we even have time for this uh is uh well there's so many other things i was going to ask about but um but bears can often seem very playful, as you've noted already and we've noted. And you make some points about play in the book. Well, and so if you could just do it in a minute or less, what, what is uh, the purpose of play? Like you, you note the difference between cubs playing and adult male polar bears playing, which obviously just by sheer size, but what else is going on fundamentally with with bears that are, that, that are well, engaging in that kind of play? I mean, I I mean
1: play? there's biological reasons for play, and then there's probably other reasons. I mean, um, the bio- play encourages young animals to learn how to stalk, learn how to run, to, it, it helps build strong, as they, we just talked about earlier, um, good strong bones require the the work of muscles pulling on them all the time, and that's what animals are doing, jumping around, stimulating their bones uh, strengthening their muscles so it's good for bone uh, skeletal and, and muscular growth it's good for learning cues to each other uh, the cues of superiority how you interact socially so play is is important for that but but recently we've started to appreciate that animals have emotions that animals do things for non-biological reasons and one of those reasons may be sheer enjoyment amusement, yeah. fun Right. right. And uh, we, we didn't invent fun. We didn't invent emotions. Humans are very young species. We're barely 200,000 years old. And there have been uh, mammals around for tens of millions of years and so what what we have as a set of emotions are evolved emotions we inherited these emotions from other animals so to think that animals don't feel grief don't feel amusement don't feel joy they may feel it differently than we do but they still feel those things sure because we didn't invent grief we didn't invent joy we didn't invent fun and we don't and we aren't the only animals that play for enjoyment yeah and so that th- that's That's the kind of new thing where... Many scientists are still reluctant to accept that, but certainly I do not, yeah. and uh, I think it's uh, it's evident for anyone who's watched a cat play with a ball uh, uh, on a Christmas tree or your dog running after a Frisbee, that they're not doing that to build muscles or anything else. They're doing right. that because it's fun. Right. And, Simple. And, and so you don't have to go very far to, to see examples of that, Yeah. and so that, that's kind of that's where shot. we are. And right. sort of ties up my minute, right?
0: I think so. That's perfect, Wayne. So, again, we've been speaking with Wayne. Wayne Lynch, his uh, fabulous new book, and I hope it's clear that how much I absolutely love, love, love this book, and anybody who cares even a hint about bears will love it as well. It's Bears of the North, A Year Inside Their Worlds, again, presumably available wherever you get your books. Wayne, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today on Talking Animals. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Well, thank you, Duncan. I enjoyed it. You ask uh, nice questions, and, and we had a chance to explore some exciting concepts.
0: I, I sure think so. Thanks again. Good luck. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Samantha Polk of Animal Coalition of Tampa about their stride for strays event coming up Saturday, October 30th at Al Lopez Park. Right now, though, we're going to step into the Comedy Corner with a piece relevant to the conversation I just had with Wayne Lynch. This is Mike Berbiglia with a portion of a piece called I'm a Bear, Etc. in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF.
3: This is the first time I remember sleep blocking. I always had dreams about wild animals when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I had this recurring dream for years that there was a bear walking in the front door of of my house literally opening the front door which is the scariest part when you think about it a bear with opposable thumbs because if a bear can open a door sky's the limit i don't have a plan for that one my plan was the door In the dream, I would hide in the kitchen cupboard with my sister Patty and it's pitch black and I'm scared to death and I open up the door crack to let in some light. I look next to me and Patty is gone and she's been replaced by the bear. It he doesn't kill me, but it gives me kind of a coy Jack Nicholson-y look. Like, will I kill you? And that's when I wake up. I had that dream for years, and then eventually I attempted to face this lifelong fear. Patty and I went to Alaska. We went to this place called Katmai National Park, which is one of these places that has so many bears that when you arrive, they take you to what's called bear orientation. And they teach you, and, and it, it seems counterintuitive, but if you ever see a bear walking towards you, you're actually supposed to clap and make the bear aware of your presence. Like, I'm right here, bear! I'm right here! I'm Mike, and you're a bear, and we're okay with each other. And when they told me this, I was like, oh, I'm going to be murdered by a bear, because that seems like basting yourself in barbecue sauce. You know, it's like, I'm right here, bear, I'm right here, and I taste fantastic. I've applied condiments so that I'll be less bland.
0: All right, that was Mike Perbiglia in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called I'm a Bear, Etc., taken from his album "Sleek Wop with me live. Now it's time to speak with Samantha Polk of Animal Coalition of Tampa about Stride for Strays. Here is Samantha Polk on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Samantha.
2: Good morning, Duncan. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So let's start quickly by providing a brief overview of ACT. What is it and what does it do?
2: Oh, ACT is a wonderful nonprofit. It started in 2006, and what we do is provide affordable uh, data neuter services as well as life essential medical services for the Cats and dogs of Tampa Bay, and we've been doing it since 2006. And uh, this stride event that we're going to be talking about is actually our 20th year of this stride. So we're pretty excited.
0: Yeah, no, that's a that's a big one. And also, I think I've heard about so many people over the years who've been helped by ACT Services. For example, low cost spay procedure can really make the difference for a person or a family uh, being able to afford proper care for their animal versus like what a spay procedure might cost elsewhere. so yes. you've you've already kind of we kinda...
2: all have them. We all have our personal stories. I expect, actually how I got my introduction was they saved my dog's life uh, over ten years ago. Wow. Um. Yeah, I had a dog, Yet, and she had cancer. And uh, they actually were able to perform her life essential literally because she had cancer and uh, medical medical procedures for such a lower cost because of their um, abilities through being a nonprofit that I was able to afford it and it saved her life, and she lived to be
0: 20 years old. Wow, that's amazing, and again, as we were starting to touch on, the only way, really, that ACT is able to provide those kind of low-cost spay-neuter procedures and medical assistance of one kind or another is because of things like Stride for Stray. So give us the lowdown, give us the nuts and bolts on Stride so we make sure we don't run out of time to hit the, the key things. Yeah, it's going to be a
2: great day. It's on October 30th. It's a Saturday at the end of the month, this this month in October, and uh starts at 30 in the morning where we do our check-in with registration and we're going to have food vendors and uh, the walk actually begins at 10 o'clock so if you're coming just for the walk, make sure to be there at 10 and then we have costume contests, pet costume contests uh, different raffles and it's just a day of fun and we have an awards ceremony at one o'clock and um i i have some some special guests uh that will be announced in the next week uh that will be doing our giving of the awards to the community Great. that's really what's hit home with us this year coming back um from losing so much time with the covid epidemic and everything and uh we We do stay and neuter so many animals, uh, that we've gone, we've stayed and neutered over a hundred thousand, uh, animals. Uh, so, uh, we are, our number one thing is being aware that our community needs us. And when they get home, their frontliners are also their pets. Yeah. You have to take care of their pets. So that continues to be our focus and we love it. And here we are on our 20th year of stride
0: that's great again. <laughs>
2: yeah. right
0: and i guess we should note that the people can get kind of pledges for for walking with their dogs and that's how the money uh, chiefly is raised for exactly. to, to help with the budgeting there over there at act so it's um, all
2: about the donors that's how we survive that's how we're able to continue our mission and uh with our with this stride you know each team raises money or individual raises money and that's what the awards are also for is to show our appreciation for what they have done um and the community feels
0: it yeah all right we're going to let people know that they can go to actampa.org or or ac Tampa or uh, animal coalition of tampa Tampa social media pages we're just about out of time samantha i'm so sorry but uh so i just wanted to give the websites and make sure people could follow up and get their information so thank you so much for joining us on uh, talking animals today
2: thank you duncan
0: thank you All right, coming up on WNF, the music kicks back in with Scott Elliott from noon to 3 p.m. A glorious three hours of music followed by Robin Hooper with another three hours of music. And we just keep the music rolling as we uh, head into our Black Latin programming. And I just want to let you know that uh, next week my guest will be Carol Buckley, founder of Elephant Aid International and Elephant Refuge North America, a sanctuary in Georgia that just welcomed its first resident, a former circus elephant named Bo. So, um invite you to join me for that show. I also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we ever broadcast, links to our social media pages, other information as well. And uh and also sign up for our weekly newsletter to find out a little bit about guests beforehand and other news from the Talking Animals world. So, I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa, Brandon. Clearwater Largo Weeki and beyond. My thanks to our guests today, Wayne Lynch and Samantha Polk, and we'll see you next Wednesday here at 11 a.m. on Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Thanks.